Hello, my name is Steve Baxter. Welcome to episode 28 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. In my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a gold-plated champagne bottle of a show lined up for you today. I'm Steve Baxter and this week I get the privilege and pleasure of turning the tables and interviewing hypnotherapist, hypnotherapy school principal, author, recognised expert in the fields of self-hypnosis and hypnosis for running, and of course the usual host of this very podcast, Adam Eason. Early in my career I trained with Adam, and nowadays I'm a trainer at his school. But more importantly to me, Adam is one of my closest friends, and indeed was best man at my wedding. Now in his usual efficient manner, Adam sent me an outline for this podcast and a list of questions that he wanted me to ask him. But then I thought back to that best man speech. Did I give him a script to read? No. So Adam, here are your questions. This week, it's my turn and my questions. In a short while, I'll be talking with Adam. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis and the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways that hypnosis is portrayed in the media and also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We'll round things off with this week's factoid before I bid you farewell. Regular listeners will notice the lack of a professional discussion simply because we had so much fun doing the interview and indeed covered a lot of the professional aspects of uh, Adam's career and approach that we simply both ran out of time and thought it unnecessary. Rest assured, Adam will be back for the next episode and normality will return. This podcast is something that Adam wants to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. He does not share the same stance as many of the guests and at times has major differences in approach and stance. But he thinks they're all incredibly lovely people who he'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom, following their time here on hypnosis, he has great respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So, let us begin... And first up is my interview with your usual host, Adam Eason. 
When I was first interested in hypnosis, I spotted his book on self-hypnosis in my local bookshop. I flicked open a page and found that unlike some other drier books I checked out, the personality of the author jumped out at me. Despite this, I still bought the book. <laughs> Little joke for Adam there. I bought the book, I read it, I consumed it, I devoured it, and yet found I had questions. Questions I took to Adam's website forum and then was taken aback to find myself conversing with Adam Eason himself. He educated, inspired, and encouraged me, as he seemed to do with many of the other people interested in hypnotherapy on that forum, and now he does the same on his hypnosis hub. Now, Adam's a renowned expert in his field, someone who's passionate about hypnosis and hypnotherapy. In person, he's friendly, outgoing, humorous, and to paraphrase his own words, someone with whom you would want to have a pint or two and enjoy putting the world to rights. So, this is episode 28. 27 of Adam's peers, including myself, have answered his questions. Now, it is Adam's turn, and he doesn't know what the questions are, as he will find out very early on in this interview. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, this is Steve Baxter, and as I've just been explaining, I'm the interview for today's Hypnosis Weekly. And I'm delighted to be talking to Adam Eason. <laughs> so let's let's get started. First question: uh, I guess you weren't born as a hypnotherapist. So can you tell us about your your first exposure? How, how you became aware of hypnosis and hypnotherapy, and you know, how, how you became how you came to be a, a hypnotherapist? Sure, I was quite. It was quite complex, I suppose, is probably the most diplomatic way of putting it. Um, I was quite complex as a younger man, and um, I had issues. And really there was no, no sort of reason for having those issues. You know, I was quite existential. You know, I enjoyed listening to Smith's LPs in a darkened bedroom. And, uh, you know, despite having a good life with a wonderful, loving and supporting family... Um, I seemed to seek out opportunities to create problems for myself and in my late teens my sort of mental health deteriorated to the point where um, I actually attempted to commit suicide mm. um, as part of the sort of gamut of treatment that uh, I was sort of pointed in the direction of afterwards I went to see a hypnotherapist um, the hypnotherapist experience was one that, that, that eventually helped me a lot um, and I really liked it. So, so, so um, what, what, was your, what was your expectation? You know, I guess you, you were told you can see a hypnotherapist. You know, did, did you expect to go into you know, a, a darkened room with a guy with a swinging watch who talks in that hushed voice? Uh, well, and you know, how, how did it differ, the reality? I had a certain level of understanding and knowledge based upon the fact that um, I, I was referred by someone that had been to, to, to see exactly the same hypnotherapist and had a very particular perspective and opinion. And um, I'm, no, 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 I, I expected none of those kind of cliched ideas whatsoever. Okay. And it sort of went in, um, um, it, it went in a direction that initially didn't help me 
a great deal, you know. Um, um, didn't help me. I felt like I was, you know, going there and, and I was having a snooze, if I'm honest, you know. And the way in which hypnosis was conceptualized to me by that particular individual wasn't all that useful. What what did become useful and what what, what got me hooked was self-hypnosis, was being given the skills, handed over the skills um, of self-hypnosis to go and develop for myself. You know, a, a really central part of my work, a central theme of the work that's really important to me is, is this notion of building self-efficacy. So, so were, you, were you finding you know, your first experience of hypnotherapy was with a professional hypnotherapist and actually you found that you got greater benefit from understanding it and using self-hypnosis yourself. Is, is that the case? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely the case. You, you know, the, the, the chap that I was working with, you know, would, would, would continually say to me, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't hear everything, um, you know, your unconscious mind will remember it all. I remember feeling thoroughly passive as a result of that, you know, and not involved in the process. And what I loved, therefore, was, you know, having the self-hypnosis uh, as a skill, as something I could go away and practice and do for myself and adopt for myself, and like I said, like, like 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 I was saying earlier, you know, this this notion of self-efficacy. I wasn't thinking of it in terms of self-efficacy then, because I didn't know what that means, or I didn't know what that what that meant. But in hindsight, it's something that you know is vitally important to me, whereby I had the confidence and began to develop the confidence that I was in the driving seat of my own life, that I could apply something, I could think in a certain way, I could drive myself in a particular direction and results would happen. And that made me feel very good in myself. It made me feel that I had access and a relationship with myself that perhaps hadn't, hadn't existed in the same way before. Um, and it began to, I suppose metaphorically, began to offer up some light as far as my way of thinking was concerned because, you know, my, my, my thoughts up until and, and throughout that period of my life were fairly dark and I was quite tough on myself. I was really into sport and so on as well. And, you know, I played football to a very high standard. And as a result, sport um, mentality uh, sometimes used to leave me feeling quite quite down in the dumps as well. Just this idea, you know, it seemed quite vacuous to me. Um, you know, lots of people were suggesting that perhaps I would consider playing football and going on to do it. And I, you know, I remember thinking to myself, well, that's not really, you know, that's not really a sort of valuable existence as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, for me, I, I went in a very particular direction. And after I left university... Um, having seen this hypnotherapist and had some had some experience of self hypnosis um, that I used throughout my time at university, I I abandoned um, um, the sort of the sort of ideas and of, of things and direction that I wanted to go in, and I thought, as I think a lot of hypnotherapists do, and a lot of the reason they become involved in this field is because the same way that I felt I'd been helped. I wanted to go and help and do some good. Yeah, and that was, and yes. that was meaningful to me. So, so, so how did you get from being the, the, the person who had benefited from and been wowed by hypnosis to being the person who then uh, is helping others? Well, I trained and set up, and set up shop. Um, I'm, I, I'm, and pretty much it is as simple as that. I spent a year training as soon as I left university and, and I worked. Um, and I worked to pay my way through. 
and then I set up practice. And at that time, um, I was very naive, quite unworldly. I was a gang, this gangly, ginger-haired hypnotherapist. Uh, that, that, that must have taken quite a lot of uh, no, self-confidence, because I guess you were on a certain uh, you know, a, a career path before you decided to make this shift and to just kind of drop everything and put so much into, you know, so it's easy to decide to become a, a hypnotherapist, but w was it really that easy? I mean, the decision was easy, but the point was I, I don't really know anything, you know, I had no entrepreneurial skills and, you know, I was very, very close to packing it in. Um, about a year later, I just sort of racked up a lot of debt and things like that and, and found it quite difficult and sort of dipped in and out of, of my level of commitment with regards to it. And, you know, I think, I think confidence uh, or self-confidence is, is very much a subjective thing. And, and for me at that time, you know, I, I believed in what I was doing, but I didn't believe in, and, and gradually my belief in my ability to, to do this as a business and as a full-time career began to wane somewhat. Um, it just so happened that I ended up spending pretty much my last few hundred quid on some some mentoring and some education from a sort of persuasion and influence expert in the States called Kevin Hogan. Um, a lot of people will be aware of him. I, I had a few conversations with him, did some of his online courses and did a few other bits and pieces with other people as well and began to develop some modicum of business skill. And um, as that began to work for me, thus my tenacity and my hunger for it, and, and I began to enjoy the business development side of my business just as much as the hypnosis and hypnotherapy part of it. And actually that ended up serving me very, very well indeed. So, so tell us how, from that that time when you were thinking of chucking it all in, and then you you worked on your 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 business skills. How, how long did it take for you to feel that you no, know, you were being successful, not just from a therapist, you know, delivering therapy, but uh, uh, in terms of running a business as well? Um, probably about two years. Probably about two years when I was sort of out of debt and I was starting to run. I ran my first self hypnosis training in 1999. And when I started running those courses, it was really when I started feeling like, you know, I was getting somewhere. You know, I've, I've run, uh, run self-hypnosis trainings um, and advertised them to the world, and, and two people have turned up before. Likewise, you know, I've run, uh, uh, you know, and, and, but, but gradually, uh, you know, the, the, the classes started filling up and things started getting interesting. And after a period of time, I ended up writing my first book on the subject. Um, which is not really a book that I that I talk about massively these days, but um, um, that book helped really jet propel my career and develop, and um, um, I became exposed to a much wider audience. At the same time, you know, the internet started happening in in very different ways, and um, I met with my business partner Keith at a networking breakfast. And um, as much as in hindsight, I loathed those networking breakfasts, they, they, they worked for me in a number of different ways. But, but first and foremost, because I ended up meeting Keith, we ended up setting up in business together. And that's been a very, a very beneficial relationship because a lot of the stuff that I dislike doing, he loves doing. And a lot of the stuff that he knows nothing about is where I got to spend my time. So I got to spend my time doing the hypnosis, doing the hypnotherapy and that kind of stuff. And he got to spend his time 
Um, I'm doing internet marketing and developing a web presence for us and things like that, which ended up working very well for us. Good, thank you. Uh, if it's okay, what I'd like to do is move on. I'd like to talk more about the business uh, aspects later, but can we move on to hypnosis itself? Yeah. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about how hypnosis perhaps was even described to you by that first hypnotherapist uh, you saw and how your knowledge and how your, your view of hypnosis has, has changed over the years? Absolutely. You know, I'm um, so... The early experience with the hypnotherapist that I had was, was, was that he was a very lovely man. Um, he hypnotized me in, in what I considered to be hypnosis in those days, but I was unaware of most of the session. You know, I, I slumped into what was a very relaxing nap of some kind. He had that classic Hush FM DJ voice, you know, and a big hello to all you truckers out there. <laughs> he used very fancy confusing language that I re really wasn't entirely sure what he was talking about at times and uh, when he brought me up and out of the session I felt a bit spaced out I felt like I truly had been in a trance that he had told me that I would go into prior to the session and I remember I said to him at the end of the session so what happens now you know I can't remember anything what happened and and what, what, what you know has the change happened you know have I received a lightning bolt up the arse <laughs> and, um, and he smiled and he said, um, I don't worry if you haven't remembered anything. Your unconscious mind has taken it all in and that's going to make the changes for you. But so you see, therapeutically, the way that this was explained to me and the way that, that this then affected me was an impotent experience for me. No change actually happened. I, I do uh, probably owe more credit to this man than I am giving him because... You know, he introduced me to this field and 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 he taught me self-hypnosis. However, you know, I kept on thinking after my sessions with him, when is my unconscious mind going to do something amazing? When yeah. is it going to tell me about the changes, you know? And and today I just think of this this very typical occurrence that happens in therapy rooms still today. Strikes me as a bit of an emperor's new clothes approach to hypnosis. I won't go into that much more. There are, there are other additions and there is written stuff about conscious, unconscious mind model as far as I'm concerned. But but I was taught that model and, and you know and my first book was based upon that model and, and the reason I rewrote it is because that's now redundant for me. Um that's Wait. Could I ask, you had this first experience with this chap, uh, this hypnotherapist, and he described hypnosis in a certain way and told you about these, uh, these, these results which you're going to get from your unconscious mind. And it sounded like even then you were sceptical. Do you think that the, 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 one of the benefits this guy uh, offered you, probably unwittingly, was this scepticism and this scepticism which has led you to question and explore and, and move your knowledge and your understanding and now the way you use and you teach hypnosis uh, in a very evidence-based way. Well, I believed him and I believed in that model and I spent years, the early years of my career, believing in that model. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't wholly committed to the critical thinking. Um, I mean, I wasn't wholly committed to the scepticism. Yeah, but but, but, but was, so, was that the seed, do you think? You know, that, in as that, much that as, doubt. you know, I, I, I even wrote a book about that model, you know, believing in it. I do think that it's still very valuable to me today in as much as, you know, the fact that I did question it, 
means that you know people can't say to me ah you just you're just an academic or you're just scholarly or whatever it might be and you don't know you don't know about the unconscious mind um, and because I do because I've written about it I explored it and, and, and I worked with it. And because I worked with so many people on that notion and with regards to that notion, um, it meant that I began to start discovering, um, you know, a, a, about its actual non-existence um, latterly. And, you know, hey, you just need to Google Adam, Adam Eason, unconscious mind, and you'll find all the things I've written about it, all the things I've said about it. If you go to an earlier edition of Hypnosis Weekly, you know, I've talked about that. But again, you know, it, it, the notion as well that it was spoken to me, that it was a state. You know, I was told um, at that time hypnosis was a state. And okay. um, um, today, you know, I, I don't explain it that way to my clients. And it's so, I, so, Can I ask, how, how do you explain it nowadays? I start off by saying, you know, that it is, it's a skill. It's a skill for you to develop. It's a skill based upon a series of very ordinary psychological processes, such as using really engaging your imagination, really adopting the role of hypnotized subject, being appropriately motivated, and, and that this set of ordinary psychological processes combine to create what we refer to as hypnosis, that is really the art and science of suggestion. So that, that that fits very neatly along that, that, that benefit you got from your early hypnotherapy, which was this idea of self-efficacy, I guess. Absolutely it did. Um, you know, self-efficacy is, is, is something I labour um, these days and, and, and consider to be wholly important. You know, this idea of people um, believing in their own ability to do things. Um, you know, you can't have self-efficacy if you believe that, you know, this is a passive state that I'm entering, where I ask my unconscious mind to make changes, you know, because none of that do you have responsibility for. It's not, it's, it's kind of intangible stuff. And, you know, that doesn't, that just, just doesn't feel right to me. Um, but, but more than the fact that it doesn't feel right is the fact that there's no evidence to support that notion. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm guessing that, uh, you know, after writing your book, which you know it involves the idea of the unconscious mind uh, quite extensively. You didn't wake up one morning and decide I don't believe that anymore. Can you tell me a little bit about you know the people, uh, the teachers, the books, perhaps that that influenced this shift and gave you you know uh, the new model, the model that you you um, adhere to today. Yeah, I trained with Donald Robertson, who very sadly to me emigrated to Canada um, um, a few years ago. I trained with him and he absolutely turned my head and put me on track. As a result of that, I ended up reading one of his books, one of his, you know, I think all of his books are brilliant, but I, I read um, um, in detail James Braid's work. And um, Braid defined hypnotism as focused attention upon an expectant dominant idea or image and I've spoken about that a lot so Braid's really important to me today because Braid invented this field in its you know in the way in which it is you know and his complete works that's something I refer to often you know um, much of what he wrote many of the strategies that he used resemble techniques and strategies that are used in CBT today for example you know um, um, I love this idea, you know, um, his, he adopted his approach based upon that 
Victorian philosophical psychology known as Scottish common sense realism. <laughs> um, um, and I love that, you know, and, and, and what he did was offer up a more common sense psychological explanation of the apparent effects of mesmerism you know the the historical precursor of hypnotism is mesmerism but really the two are are, are virtually unrelated other than that sort of historical context because you know um, um and i suppose you can make some draw some parallels with regards to the way in which suggestion was used in both but um you know uh, uh, building upon James Braid's work, Hippolyte Bernheim, um, 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 was was is really a, a major influence upon me, who I would consider to be, you know, the second most important person in the field of hypnosis. You know, um, talked about um, um, as I've mentioned before, he spoke about um, and wanted to to rename hypnosis and, and his approach suggestive therapeutics you know um, um, because it was more about suggestion and mindset and so on um, but then people that have really contributed to uh, uh, you know my own stance today um, um, in particular these are sort of heroes of mine based upon the fact and my love of self-hypnosis so Emil Kuwe Emil Kuwe wasn't what, you know, Emil Kuwe wasn't uh, uh, specifically using self-hypnosis, but it's very, very similar. The auto-suggestion um, 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 elements of his work are very similar to what we would uh, refer to as self-hypnosis today. But Emil Kuwe is a really major influence upon me. The ideas of, you know, the fact that he rejected the field of hetero-hypnosis because people could just reject suggestion. You know, so he thought that it would be far more effective, far more valuable to teach people how to communicate with themselves effectively. And, and so a lot of his work was about that, you know, overcoming the effort error, um, um, which I love, which is really important to me. Andrew Salter, the behaviour therapist of the 1940s, um, also wrote the first ever peer-reviewed journal article on self-hypnosis. So... Uh, he has influence upon me and likewise he was he was aided by Clark Hull and I've spoken about Clark Hull here before as well back in the 1930s Clark Hull in perhaps the first real scientific works of the field of hypnosis wrote that lovely expression anything that assumes hypnosis creates hypnosis you know i.e. this is a very Value, you know, expectancy is a very valuable component of hypnosis. Some of the big non-state theorists are really important to me. Um, people like Theodore Sabin, because he, you know, he talked about adopting the role. You know, essentially he's doing the behavioural part within the cognitive behavioural approach to hypnosis, or the socio part in the socio-cognitive approach where you know he's encouraging people to adopt the role of hypnotized subject and to relate to it and it's so valuable such a valuable thing to learn how to do you know to to behave as if you are hypnotized there's some very interesting references to be had within there with regards to you know method acting for example some of my acting heroes 
if you read their autobiographies or biographies, very often say that they took on facets of their characters, you know, and became disillusioned or led or excited in certain ways um, because they adopted facets of this uh, of this role. And likewise, adopting the role of hypnotized subject um, is something that um, can can be taught very simply to our clients and will advance hypnotic responsivity. It will, will, will advance much more besides. Theodore Barber, apart from Irving Kirsch, Theodore Barber, the most prolific researcher within our field, um, back in the 60s in particular. Um, and, and Theodore Barber is someone, you know, that a lot of really important premises he supported with evidence. Stuff like the, 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 the actual usefulness or the actual benefit of doing hypnotic inductions, for example. The other two people that I, I, I probably the other major influences as far as I'm concerned would be Nicholas Spanos. His Carlton Skills training program is a really evidence-based way in which um, um, it's been proven that, that responsivity and hypnotizability are not set in stone. And that's very encouraging for me because it means that, you know, when I teach self-hypnosis, when I teach hypnotherapy, it means my clients, it means that would-be self-hypnotists know through evidence that if they practice the skill, they can become better at it. And that's something which, which has really appealed to me throughout my, you know, you know even, even when I was first experiencing hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Um, and then, you know, finally, um, I'm Irving Kirsch as well. I find it amazing when I'm running CPD seminars in particular that I'll mention Irving Kirsch and people look at me with a great big question mark spread <laughs> over their face like, who the hell is that? Yet he has done more research, um, more clinical trials than any other person. And, and not all of it is brilliant and not all of it is without some bias or without some sort of um, um, agenda. But nonetheless, you know, his response expectancy theory, the fact that um, um, in, in the 1990s he referred to hypnosis as a non-deceptive mega placebo um, um, are all things that put smiles on my face and have definitely influenced me. So I think those are probably the people that have been the most influential um, um, upon me. Um, yeah. I, I thought there's a couple of uh, observations I made about that. Uh, the first one is, you know, across all those people you mentioned, the recognised um, big contribu contributors to the field, none of them, and correct me if I'm wrong, none of them uh, even mention, I think, the idea of the unconscious mind. No, you're quite right. None of them uh, And do. the one um, that a lot, a lot of people will think is missing from that list is, of course, Milton Erickson. And yet, I think if, if you talk to somebody who, uh, and certainly I was this person some years ago, and maybe perhaps uh, yourself in early years, if you were trained in the Ericksonian approach to hypnotherapy and you were asked to list the, the key people who were influencing you, I think people would struggle to come up with a list as long as the list you've just offered. Well, you know, I mean, the vast, vast majority of people that I've encountered and probably the vast majority of people that I've interviewed on this Hypnosis Weekly podcast, you know, have mentioned Ericsson or Elman. Um, and, and, and then who, who else is there? Yeah, and, and probably, <laughs> probably, um, you know, on a personal level, I find um, I, I empathise and sympathise and appreciate the, 
the work of Elman more than Ericsson. And again, you know, um, first of all, I mean, I'll go back to your original point there. None of the people that I'm talking about that I've mentioned as being strong influences upon me have actually even cited or referred to the unconscious mind. That is, you know, they've not even refuted it because it's just not on there. You know, James Braid invented this field. There's no mention in his entire works of anything to do with an unconscious mind. None of these researchers, none of these clinicians talk about it. You know, it's not even on their radar. Michael Heap made some reference to it within the Heartland's textbook and really just talked about the fact that, yeah, we do stuff unconsciously, but we don't need to nominalise that to suggest that it means that we have a thing called an unconscious mind, okay? But then, yeah, coming back to some of your, some of your other points there, as far as Ericsson is concerned, you know, the sort of model that I adhere to even, even refutes whether Ericsson's approach does actually constitute hypnosis as we know it. Um, certainly within the research, Ericksonian research is not, um, um, Ericksonian sort of language patterns and so on have, have not been used in really anything like the amount of research studies that just plain speaking direct suggestions have. So it probably isn't very fair on the field of hypnosis to suggest that Ericksonian hypnosis can, can therefore hang on the shirt tails of, of the more researched applications of hypnosis. Mm. Second of all, one of the issues for me is that, you know, hypnosis is this collaborative thing, this wonderfully intimate process and this sort of skills-based um, um, element. And the idea of trying to sneak in suggestions um, um, to people tends to go against that sort of overriding philosophy of it being collaborative. And it's almost, you know, it's verging on being deceitful. And I think some authors question whether what Ericsson did is actually hypnosis as far as, you know, a lot of the academics are concerned and whether it might be best being explained as something else, such as, you know, indirect suggestion therapy, for example. It's a big discussion um, for a long night um, um, but yeah, you know, um, um, certainly the, the impact and influence upon me, it is something that I've studied in great, um, um, at great length, but doesn't inf impact upon the person that I am today. Um, certainly, you know, I, I, I teach as part of my own diploma courses, you know, um, it would be remiss um, to, to offer up a full and thorough education without including that kind of stuff, but it doesn't influence the therapist that I am today. So, you know, I, I need to know about that stuff. I need to teach it. I need to train it. But equally, I need to understand some of the critique of it and the flaws of it in order to teach it effectively. OK. Now, we, 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 we've talked uh, a, a bit about your first experience of hypnosis. And in terms of results, you are unimpressed. Let's, let's look at the other end of the, the spectrum. What, what experiences of you know, the application of hypnosis have you, you seen or you know, experienced yourself that kind of you know, really blew your socks off, that you thought, you know, wow? Um, when I was in my early 20s, uh, when I was in my early, early 20s, my own father had a hip replacement operation. Had to have some blood taken to be used Within, uh, within his operation and so on. And uh, he was quite a young man to have a hip replacement. He broke his hip when he was young. And um, um, despite having a very 
hardy tolerance for pain. You know, he asked me if uh, I could work with him and do some stuff with hypnosis for advanced healing um, in response to uh, the operation he was about to undergo. And um, so, so, so we did some stuff together. Prior to then, all the times when they'd taken blood, um, he'd been, it had been really easy for it to happen. And following that hypnosis session, later that day, he went to have his final set of blood taken prior to the operation. And it, you know, it, it just wasn't forthcoming. They had to attempt it several times. And to this day, him and I still um, um, are, are absolutely certain it was because his body was was healing, was responding, that it wasn't excessively bleeding. And we find that to be very interesting. A few years ago, I worked in a hospital with a lady who was having a benign lump removed from her, be her breast, the upper part of her breast. I, I was given permission to go and work with her, to have that removed and, and just use hypnosis without any, uh, without any chemical, any drugs for anesthesia or analgesia. Um, and I was sat in there with her. She was being tugged and pulled around. And, and, and she just continued to smile and continued to assure me how comfortable she was. And I just found that to be amazing to actually watch and see. Um, in particular, you know, this experience I had with my dad, you know, the really embryonic phases of my career. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't analysing it in the same way which I scrutinise things today with evidence and with follow-up and so on. So a lot of it is down to a kind of subjective interpretation. With this particular lady, you know, the only pain relief she was having, the only circumstance, it was quite isolated, the hypnosis she was using, and that began to, to just make me feel um, really assured and amazed. And I think probably the third and final thing that I would consider to be the other really impressive application I've directly witnessed beyond you know sort of day-to-day -day stuff that I continue to find so amazing is a lady that I work with called Cheryl Deer and um, she was written about in Woman's Own after I'd worked with her about a year after I'd worked with her um, because she reduced her weight by over 10 stone and when I met up with her about a year after our final session she came up to me face to face and I could barely recognise her, barely recognise her. You know, it took me, you know, some squinting and, so, you know, I had to sort of, uh, you know, I really had to eat some humble pie afterwards because I was like, you know, I, I could barely recognise her um, when I saw her afterwards. And I just found that to be incredible. I think it's difficult to offer up gradations of what you consider to be impressive applications of hypnosis because... Just the day-to-day -day experience of being a hypnotherapist continues to make me smile, continues yeah. to impress me, continues to amaze me and astonish me that, you know, essentially I am saying words. Uh, that person is responding to them. You know, that person's accessing their cognitions, engaging their imagination, um, being driven and, um, and so on. And as a result of that... It has very real physiological, emotional, psychological reactions, responses that I just think, wow, you know, that's cool. OK, if I may, I'd like to ask that question um, again, but with you in your role, a slightly different is you in your role as a, a teacher of hypnotherapy. Can you think of a, an impressive application where one of your students has done something you know, uh, outstandingly creative or different 
you know, based on the, the the information that you've taught them and done something that you know you, you perhaps wouldn't have considered, and you've thought, wow. Um, well, um, I, I ought to give a, a really impressive shout out to to, to, to I mean, loads of people really. Um, Mark Chapel works at a hospital within a pain clinic. You know, using hypnosis to help people with 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 all manner of different issues and you know i don't know many people that are using hypnotherapy and hypnosis in specific specialist clinics within actual real life hospitals um i recall um dave dorothy a hypnotherapist based in southampton um using hypnosis um with uh, in class and and developing the idea and chatting away to me um using it to have a similar effect to botox which was which was just just uh, incredible with what happened in the session you know big swathes of students doing anesthesia and analgesia um, um there's you know lo- loads of loads of guys out there gone on to do very impressive stuff write incredible books and um, do all kinds of um, really neat things, but you know those are the ones that um, I mean. I want everybody listening to know that that, that you know we, we we've not prepared any of these answers. Steve just got me on the hop there, and um, <laughs> um, that's what I'd say. You now those are the things that initially come to mind. I know we're going to stop recording, and I'm going to think, ah, why didn't I say that person? Why didn't I think of that person too? Um, a big shout out to my very dear friend who was on this program who's on the uh, hypnosis weekly this podcast a while back um lindsay shepherd who's used it to dramatically reduce her own weight and has been working with super morbidly obese people you know over and beyond um, um anything that that, that that she learned with me with major effect and and impact so you know there's there's, there's so many people doing really cool things out there in particular i think you know when people get the love for it and the people really sort of appreciate and start to um, um, know what they can do. The creativity flows. Okay. So let's move on. Normally at this, uh, this part of the, uh, the interview, um, we would ask you to look, think back to um, your career as a hypnotherapy professional and ask, you know, knowing what you know now, what you would have done differently and I would suggest that this is slightly different for you because you're so involved in training so I'd like to ask you you know off the cuff again what do you think are the the key skills the key beliefs the key things they need to be doing for for somebody who is training as a hypnotherapist to become a successful hypnotherapy practitioner well I suppose I suppose you'd you, you know everybody would guess but I would say get evidence-based um, and, and be ev- at least learn about and know about the evidence base. You know, I spent the first eight years of my career without really knowing anything about the evidence base that we have, but it's it's extensive, you know, and, and it's impressive. It's nowhere near as impressive as we would like, but that seems like such a waste for me, you know. Know that stuff, learn that stuff, know about randomized controlled trials, you know, know what science says, and do not just believe in what you are taught without applying some critical thinking. I think critical thinking skills, you know, is a very creative way to to adopt and work within your career. And, and the reason I say this is because I believe 
that by being evidence-based and by adopting critical thinking to the way in which you work with clients, you know, using reflective practice, having good quality supervision and, um, and learning is going to make you a better therapist. And I think the single best thing you can do for your business is to be a good therapist, you know, have, have people go away and talk about their wonderful experience with you and share it and you'll get referrals and so on, you know, by having good quality success. There's a question that I ask my clients that the vast majority of hypnotherapists, I think, fear. At least in my experience, people fear asking at the end of their first session, all my clients, how can I make this better? What can we do better? Tell me, how can I better serve you, for example? Or at least find out what their experience has been. And the reason that that's so important for, for your business is that you might have to take some things on the chin, perhaps even some undue criticism. You might have to take that on the chin but you can do something about it as a result of knowing it. Nothing just gets harboured. You can begin to tweak, tailor your approach with this particular individual. You can show them that you've responded to what they've said in subsequent sessions, and it will make their ongoing experience infinitely better, so much better as a result of being brave enough to ask that question, to really go deep into what their experience of you has been. And, you know, being bold with questions like that, I think, um, really develops your business. And, and you know, be credible. You know, if you are evidence-based, if you ask the right questions, you be credible. And if the client perceives you as being credible, they're going to, you know, that's going to advance the efficacy of the treatment, you know, just based upon that belief system and that perception of you. With regards to, to that as well, you know, you're far more likely to have quality medical professionals refer you if you are evidence-based and if you can prove that to, 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 to you know, your, your, your province and to the, the, the places that source, they're going to be sources for you, for your clients. You know, I'm, I'm really biased on this because um, I have found that having a niche has been incredibly valuable. I know that some people disagree with that, but for me personally, it's been very valuable. Um, my niche has always been self-hypnosis. I don't know anybody else um, out there whose work, you know, with perhaps some of the staunch academics such as Erica Fromm, um, um, anybody that's, that, that's actually contributed to the development of self-hypnosis um, and that's written about it as much as I have, you know, even more of a niche for me, um, the, the, the hypnosis for running, you know, combining two two real loves of my life, self-hypnosis and, and running, marathons, ultra-marathons, um, those niches have served me incredibly well. Um, I, you know, I, I am known for being or having a degree of expertise in those areas. People seek me out. That makes me credible. And that's good for business. It doesn't mean that people, uh, you know, don't want to come and see me for stopping smoking or don't want to come and see me for weight reduction or for, for you know, updating habits or working with depression and anxiety. I probably deal with, with more depression clients and more anxiety clients than I do work with runners. But I work with a lot of runners. Um, but that niche, you know, um, it gives you credibility, especially when you're starting your career. When you're new, it's a way to get credibility that perhaps you've not got 
by being by having been in the business for 15 years. Um, so you can compete with seasoned professionals by having a niche and having credibility, for example. The other thing I would say with regards to developing business is that these days, modern technology is such people, you know, they're writing their blogs and they're getting their websites nice and neat and they're doing all kinds of different things, um, getting their business cards right and so on. And they, they, you know, despite being us therapists being in the communication business, they're, they're not doing that in a way they develop their business. You know, have more conversations, speak directly, one to one, real life, human interaction, you know, communicate with people, speak to them. Um, You know, the more people you speak with, the more people will get a sense of who you are and they'll see that, you know, um, um, as a sort of runner up prize to to speaking directly to more people, you know, put put video of yourself and uh, or audio and things and let people get a feel for you. Let them see how you communicate. So, yeah, I think that's important stuff. I also think, you know, for people that that are thinking about getting into this field, that they choose their initial training very carefully. I mean, I'm bound to say that, right, because I run a therapy training school. You know, I run a a hypnotherapist training school. But, you know, I urge people, don't just choose what is cheapest. Um, You know, the small saving you make in the early days actually is not a major investment. You know, getting something that's 500 quid, 700 quid or, or, you know, a thousand pounds cheaper is not going to be a good investment. You know, that that... The, the, the additional money that you spend will will pay you later on, I assure you. You know, go to a college or a training school that will genuinely set you up with a depth, a breadth of knowledge and skill that's going to ensure you have a credible career, a credible career. And, and you know, how are they going to help you develop your career, you know? So, uh, I, if I may, I, yeah. I can remember, you know, searching for uh, a hypnotherapy course and, and I found it quite uh, quite a challenge because I would look across a number of different websites and different schools um, would say you know their approach to hypnotherapy was the right one and they they'd list uh, you know all the, the topics which you know at that stage I didn't understand that they were going to teach me and they would say they were accredited by such and such an association which I've never heard of so for somebody in that position of you no know, uh, not really understanding the the business and how qualification works. Do do you have any tips for somebody for you no know, picking out those good schools, those ones that are worth their their investing their time and money in getting the, the quality training for? In, in essence, how how do they tell? Well, you know, go and learn about the ethos of that college. You know, if they've got no ethos, I probably wouldn't even bother. Um, um if they're you know, if, there are, if they are a massive corporate organisation offering things at a very cut price, doing far inferior levels of classroom hours, you know, look beyond the fact that they're cheap, for example, because not all therapy courses um, are, are, are equal. You know, I run, um, I run peer support groups, for example. Um, I'm, I mean, therapists from all over the south of England come and attend them. And, you know, I, I will mention certain therapeutic interventions and, and, you know, a lot of the people that have trained with certain schools don't even know that. So become aware of their ethos. What's important to them? Do they have an ethos? You know, here, 
for example, we make it very obvious that it's important for people not just to be churned out to think what I think. You know, we're not attempting to create lots of, you know, other versions of Adam Eason. Instead, what we want is for people to have critical thinking skills, to, to seek out and understand both sides of a philosophy, both sides of a theory. Um, and then be able to communicate from one particular stance. I have loads of people that say to me, you know, oh, I can't believe your stance on regression. You know, I've been trained and, um, you know, it's great. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, but are you aware of ABC? Are you aware of XYZ? And they're not aware of it. And I just don't Mm. think they're in a position to make and to have that discussion with me or that debate or to fashion an argument if they are not aware of both sides of the discussion and if they're not aware of both sides of the discussion then their training has not been good as far as I'm concerned because training shouldn't be about saying this is how to do things do as we say it's about giving a rounded education so you know you speak to to training colleges and schools and you understand you get an understanding about what's important to them what kind of values do they have within their training what's important to equip you know i genuinely give a shit about the field of hypnotherapy it matters <laughs> to me you know this is, is that not your strap line? <laughs> yeah that's going to be my yeah a new professional strap line i do actually give a shit um, um, uh, uh, but when I say that, you know, in the development of the field, um, um, Vidal Sassoon said that really rather lovely notion as their strapline, you look good, we all look good. Um, um, and, and, and that's very pertinent to us in as much as, you know, the more hypnotherapists that are doing a good job and representing the field well, the more it will develop. Yet a lot of the organisations, a lot of training colleges, you know, I, I just feel like they've not properly read the subject and and I don't think that puts them in a great position to teach this subject you know a lot of people think um, that the next step up from being a therapist in order to earn more money is to open a training college or start their school up and essentially what they end up doing is perpetuating the same limited experience the same limited education that they have instead of and they do it for a, for a, a you know a short period of time it's not prolonged because you know the the if they're not really good, they're not having an effective career. Um, um, you know, if you're a if you're a training college, you need your students to go on and represent you well in order for for people to see um, that it's worthwhile coming and investing in what you do. Same with with therapy. You know, you need your clients to be out there being well as a result of seeing you. You know, and very often. Um, the people that uh, that struggle to make or have an effective career in this field are those that um, perhaps didn't have the best education and are struggling to really work effectively with their clients. The only other thing I would add to that is, you know, develop a personality. I mean, I say develop, just use what you've actually got as a personality, you know. Um, you know, use your personality on your websites. You know, really, does the world need any more websites with big stacks of pebbles pictured on it, or someone in a yoga pose and beside a waterfall? You know, what the hell's that got to do with hypnosis? <laughs> and, and don't go and buy that that hypnosis image of the watch. You know, that blue one, that sort of blue swinging watch in the background. You know, get something. You know, 
develop your personality. Let your personality shine through. Give people a re- you know, raise your head above the vast sort of sheep-like template-based uh, um, magnolia-painted, vanilla-flavored, beige-wearing type of community. That, that, that people tend to adhere to within the field of hypnotherapy, you know? you know? Let your personality come through. Show people why they ought to come and see you. Let them see that you are different. Let them see, you know, the kind of person you are and connect. You won't be everything to everybody, but the people that do resonate well with you will come and invest in you. They'll plant their flag beside you. They will enjoy that, you know? Um, it's unrealistic. To attempt to please everybody so therefore don't even bother you know attempt to please the people that that can be pleased by you and 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 will resonate with you you know so so be yourself or invent yourself you know in, in a good manner but have a personality rather than you know be this sort of vacuous attempt at one Good, excellent. Now, if I may, I'd like to return uh, to, uh, to to hypnosis again, and we've talked uh, extensively about your experience of hypnotherapy and of being a hypnotherapy trainer and being a hypnotherapist, um, but also your niche of self hypnosis. How would you describe the difference between, I say, the experience of being you know, uh, hypnotized by a hypnotherapist? or maybe downloading a hypnotherapy uh, track, or doing self-hypnosis. What's the difference between those three experiences of hypnosis, in in your opinion? Um, Well, you know, well, hetero-hypnosis, I I mean, it's probably not really my opinion that's valid. Um, um, It's it's the opinion of people that have experienced it and sort of general general flavours and what the research would suggest is probably more valid than than just my opinion. Um, um, Because, you know, I'd like to think that my opinion is formed and and, and informed by by the research, the evidence and so on. And so the fundamental differences between self-hypnosis and hetero-hypnosis, first of all, tends to be phenomenological. That is, you know, that, that people's ongoing experience, what does it feel like, and so on. And classically, within self-hypnosis, that tends to be um, that their imagery is more vivid, for example, but that they are more open to distraction. With hetero-hypnosis, people tend to find it easier to, to, to respond to hypnotic phenomena and, and for certain things to be actualized a lot more readily. I think it would be inaccurate to say that audio recordings are self-hypnosis. Um, some people may, discuss, may think they are because you are by yourself when you're listening to them. But essentially they're hetero-hypnosis with the, the therapist not present, the hypnosis professional not present. Um, what I would consider to be self-hypnosis is self-directed application of hypnosis. You are directing the experience. You're absolutely in control of it, you know. You know, it it has those differences, but there are other academics that kind of dispute that there's any difference between them whatsoever, that in fact, you know, they they are pretty much the same thing. What I tend to say is that certainly... For me, self-hypnotists become more effective when they've got an initial early experience of hetero-hypnosis. With the Carlton Skills Training Program, for example, developed by Spanos and Gorassini in the 80s, what they did is they would show the individual that was about to be hypnotized, show them a video or or, um, um, a demonstration 
of heterohypnosis. Then they would give them an experience of heterohypnosis before teaching them how to then use that same experience, that same induction protocol for themselves as self-hypnosis and then to go and practice the self-hypnosis skill readily. And as a result of following those kind of basic principles, I mean, th th there's a lot more education that goes with that, you know, a lot of teaching people how to make suggestions most effective, how to engage their imagination in the most effective way, how to use their cognitions in the most effective way and so on. But it was that those kind of basic steps there which which led people to be more hypnotizable, more responsive. So, you know, I think those are the those are probably the most obvious differences between self-hypnosis and heterohypnosis. Um, and that's kind of where I am with that. You know, I, I think I think one of the redeeming features of of heterohypnosis is that it tends to get done. Um, and certainly the vast, vast majority of those people listening will say, you know, it, it tends to get done in a therapeutic setting which means that sometimes it gets associated with, with being relaxing. Whereas I think self-hypnosis becomes portable, it becomes mobile. And so, you know, I get to teach it to runners and, um, you know, these guys are not necessarily relaxed. Certainly, you know, when I'm running, um, when I'm running a marathon or an ultra marathon, for example, I'm not physiologically relaxed in the same way that I would be if I was sat in a reclining chair with the hypnotherapist adopting his or her hush FM DJ voice, for example. Now, I'd like to suggest something I'd noticed about, uh, within the context of self-hypnosis, and I'd like your, 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 your opinion, or you, you can you know, state the evidence to support or, or refute it. I, <laughs> I, I, I often suggest to my clients for their particular issue. One of the reasons that hypnotherapy, uh, I think, is a good solution for them, because quite possibly, you know, hypnotherapy described as people becoming engaged with their imagination is possibly, or probably, how they create and maintain their problem. Which Is that something you would agree with? Yeah, yeah. Well and I think it's specific, a specific example, you know, somebody who has a phobia, maybe a, uh, a fear of flying, uh, at, at the yeah, very suggestion yeah. that they might have to go on a plane, they will immediately use their imagination, imagine being on a plane and feeling anxious and they're being turbulent yeah. and things like that. And, and I, I strongly suspect and possibly believe that, that that is contributing and maintaining their, their, their anxiety. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of authors would refer to that process as negative self-hypnosis. You know, negative self-hypnosis is, is creating and perpetuating the problem, you know. Um, um, one of the ways in which um, cognitive therapy, for example, conceptualizes the way in which it works is, is by conceptualizing the client's problem in the same way that they conceptualize hypnosis. So, for example, the classic um, triple response model or, 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 uh, of, of cognitive therapy, according to Ellis and Beck, for example, um, and the authors that created that field, would um, often use ABC, you know, where A represents um, the adversity or the antecedents, for example, and C equals the consequences. So a lot of people turn up for therapy and say, look, a equals C. That is, you know, um, um, if someone has a social phobia or social anxiety, for example, the idea of going to the pub or the idea of going and having social interaction with where, where there are strange people equals the butterflies in my stomach 
um, um, the, the, the desire to escape, the avoidance and so on. But in reality, it's not the situation, it's not the adversity, it's not the, the antecedent that causes C to happen, the consequences. It's actually that A multiplied by B equals C. And that is where B is attitudes, beliefs and cognitions. So it's your thoughts about it, your beliefs about the situation, about going to the pub that, that are multiplied to create the consequences. Now, if we use that same ABC model and we conceptualize the client's problem and we say, so, so, you know, that's a way of us explaining the problem. And it shows that the beliefs you have at the moment, the way you're communicating with yourself at the moment is feeding the issue. Hypnosis happens in a very, very similar fashion. A, we have an antecedent which, and, and, and um, an action, which is, which is the induction, for example. So we have the induction multiplied by the client's beliefs and their education, their internal dialogue, their cognitions, their imagination. So multiplied by B equals C, which is the hypnosis. So it's created the hypnosis. Your beliefs are about the induction process and about you know, your education about the process multiplied by the context, the construct, the framework and so on. That is what creates the hypnosis. So likewise, we conceptualize the client's problem, show them their beliefs, thoughts, so on creates feelings. Uh, the feelings create behaviors, behaviors, kind of, you know, start to affect life and make things very real. And um, that all of that process actually is feeding and perpetuating the problem. But the beauty of that also is that it shows that they are essentially the one that can be in control of it. So if we conceptualize both in the same way, it becomes a beautiful thing. Okay, I'm going to tell you about a real-world uh, experience. Happened the other evening. I was out for a, a pizza with a fellow hypnotherapist when the restaurant, and we got chatting to the owner uh, in Bournemouth, uh, which is where your, you and your school are based. And uh, in the, 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 this conversation, we found out that she was very interested in running. In fact, she's training and has entered herself for the, um, uh, the Bournemouth Half Marathon. And also had experienced hypnosis and hypnotherapy before. So she was very interested to hear that we're hypnotherapists. And her question to us was, she was wondering, and she was intending to explore, can hypnosis and hy hypnotherapy help her with her running? Mm. Uh, how would you answer that question? Well, first of all, before I start answering that question, can I just say that you, you are demonstrating exactly what I was talking about earlier, and that is real-life communication. Actually communicating, talking, expressing, finding opportunities, you know, without needing to sell, you are creating interest and so on within within your work and everything else. So, um, yeah, of course, of course, um, um, hypnosis is something that isn't typically associated with running. Um, um, what, why would it be? Yet, rather unusually, when I wrote my book on that particular subject, um, a late edition to the book was a piece of research by a man called Callan that was conducted in the 80s that showed the phenomenological experience of running is very often similar to the phenomenological experience of self-hypnosis, you know. So um, um, it makes sense, and, and the two have some parallels with regards to the sort of place that people are in psychologically. But if you think about all the stuff that we do in therapy using hypnosis, such as overcoming pain, such as reducing anxiety, advancing 
um, skills such as thinking, you know, teaching clients how to think positively, how to elevate their mood, how to, you know, be effective in the face of adversity. You know, these are all things that are very relevant to a runner. In particular, some of the most impressive evidence is about the way in which hypnosis can be utilized to positively affect our perception of effort. We're always far more capable than we realize. Yet, you know, a lot of people run to post a letter 10 meters from their front door and get knackered. You know, <laughs> and their legs start saying, oh my God, don't do that again. You know, and you walk back. Yet, I know that that exact same person actually is very capable of running a mile. And the vast majority of people that complete a 5K, you know, they go into a park run or something, they're very capable of doing it faster. You know, anybody that runs a 5K, for example, you know, if you took their best 5K time and said, I want you to beat that by one minute, and if you do, I will give you a million pounds, they'll bloody well do that. I'm telling you, they're capable of doing it. Um, um, you know, if they apply themselves effectively and so on. Of course, it makes a lot of sense. And for me, running has been a real love of my life. I ran my first marathon back in the year 2000, um, and I've been running several of them um, annually since. You know, I've had a lull from time to time, but I write, um, I write a blog about the subject. I wrote a book about the subject. My PhD studies involve elements of using self-hypnosis for the advancement of cardiorespiratory endurance. And I'm, you know, I'm making an attempt at advancing the literature on the subject. It works for me quite well as a business, as I mentioned earlier. You know, the niche is there as well. But you know, that niche wouldn't have been able to be developed by me if there was no evidence and there was no genuine usefulness. It, you know, it, it, it struck me. I'm, I'm, I'm almost literally, um, it struck me once whereby I was thinking to myself um, um, after completing a marathon and I was looking towards my next event that I had this sort of perverse enjoyment of battling demons in a sort of 20 miles and 25 miles, you know, wanting to get to the end, wanting to finish overcoming that pain. And, and I sort of quite enjoyed that pain. I enjoyed the struggle with myself. I enjoyed facing those demons and, and using my mind to overcome them. I thought that was really impressive and enjoyable and, um, and started pining for more of that pain in order that I could test the way in which I would use my mind, my psychology with regards to it. With all of that in mind, you know, there were all kinds of stuff that I started researching up on. And I thought, you know, um, I, it's, it, it seems crazy to me not to be using my hypnosis with this. And so I started doing it. And as I started using my hypnosis, so I started running faster. I started running further. I started enjoying it even more. And I started to, to teach people how to do it. I started to write about it. And, you know, we did the blog and the rest is, is history. It's, um, it's one of those things. Very, very few people engage in psychological methodology to advance their running. The elite runners do. And they very often say, you know, it's as much about the right mindset as it is about training the miles and the legs and so on. So if it's equal in those terms, it makes sense that, you know, equal amount of your training is working on that. Yet very, very few, you know, negligible amounts of people actually invest themselves um, um, in that, uh, uh, at, at that degree. Um, but those that do 
are, are the ones that go on and excel and run faster and so on. Okay. So m my uh, final question, uh, and uh, I'm afraid it's another one that uh, you won't have prepared for. We've talked a lot about um, where you started in hypnotherapy and how you progressed. And people, I think people listening to this podcast, they'd be aware of your work at the school that you started. They'd be aware of your work as a successful hypnotherapist, aware of your you know, the range of downloadable products. So can I ask you, I mean, as far as you're, you're, you're comfortable and happy to tell us, well, what are the things that you're working on now? What's going to be the next phase for uh, Adam Eason? We're putting together a lot of, and we're putting together a lot of webinars. Um, we're working webinars. Um, we're developing a couple of more courses that people have asked for us. But also, we are, um, we are you know, we certainly have been spreading our wings, and um, we're we're reaching uh, corners, dark corners of the UK and Europe. You know, heck, my you, college. You're not, you're not called... playing those Smiths uh, LPs again, do you? No, 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 no. But those people maybe. So we're we're off to shine a light in their darkened bedrooms. Um, um, but you know, we're, we're going and seeing more of the place. Um, I, I moved to the south coast as a lifestyle decision for myself. Um, um, and and in particular, um, it always been my opinion that people want to train with us. You know, they have to come here um, and see us. But we decided uh, the last uh, over recent times actually to get out there. And you know, in the last year, we've been teaching uh, very busy classes in um, um, in Edinburgh and then in Manchester and London as well as down here in Bournemouth. And in the next year, we're going to be overseas a great deal. So um, um, we've got. We've got projects with regards to doing more of what we currently do to 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 in more places. However, you know, there's um, um, there's there's a new book. There's um, um, I'm also starting to take coaching clients as well as just therapy clients, and that's something I've I've not really done in length before. I've I've taken sort of personal contracts where one-off people have asked me um, for me to coach them and help with sort of elite level and executive coaching and it's something I've really enjoyed and um, I have uh, I have a beach hut down here you know I invite people and my clients to come and do coaching down there and we drink coffee and walk on the beach and things like that um, as well as you know working uh, working via Skype and on the phone and things so that's something that's uh, that's a little bit new um, there are other projects um, and we've got a lot of new audio projects that uh, I'm working on um, and it's not just a matter of getting them out there you know they need to be written and researched and developed and worked on um, so they take a bit of time to, to get into real life production but there's some of that stuff happening at the moment nothing truly revolutionary at the moment but you never know okay uh, and, and uh, one thing which I th you possibly missed out of that was, of course, that uh, and you mentioned uh, uh, one of your answers uh, briefly is that you're working on a PhD. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, we are examining and looking at um, the the efficacy of self hypnosis. Um, um, so one of the first things that that I had to do was obviously construct and put together um, um, a systematic. Um, um, literature review of the subject and uh, that's no mean feat. Um, additionally we, you know, I, I say we because I'm referring to myself and my supervisory team um, but you know essentially it's me. 
So yeah, that also then has involved us examining the application of self-hypnosis to inhibit the Stroop effect. Likewise, we uh, then are progressing to applications of measuring self-hypnosis and its efficacy in the development of cardiorespiratory endurance uh, among runners and certain pain applications, very objective pain applications of self-hypnosis. That'll sort of formulate those, that, that, those are the main experiments that um, will all contribute to, to, the, to the end result of the PhD for me. Yeah, so that's something that's kind of ongoing in my own personal private world, yes. Oh, I mean, for those who haven't come across it, what, what, what is it, the, the Stroop test and what, what's the effect of self-hypnosis that you're, you're looking to you know, demonstrate or, or refute perhaps? Well, the Stroop effect is um, um, something of major interest to the field of cognitive neuroscience. Essentially what happens is um, 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 people are shown a word on a screen and they're asked to press the button that corresponds with the colour of that word. So if the word red comes up and it is red, people find it very easy and they're very quick in a split second to press the red button. If the word green comes up and the words are green, very quick to hit the green button and so on. If, however, the word blue comes up and it's in red, the anterior cingulate within the brain becomes confused because we're reading the word and we get, and we get distracted by reading the word and are less able to perceive and see the colour. And so there is a delay. We're slower to do it. One of, the, one of some of the early research began to show that when this was a foreign language... It didn't apply a foreign language that the client or that the, the subject was not aware of, that the same delay did not happen. Anyway, some years ago, Dr. Raz and colleagues started to use hypnosis to attempt to create word blindness. That is, so that the client, that the subject in the study was blind to the word and would just see the colour, or the words got scrambled or something. Um, so heterohypnosis. Uh, you know, a really important piece of research within our field shows that hypnosis is not just compliance for, you know, that, that actually it can, um, it can inhibit the Stroop effect. So what, one of the things that we've done is wanting to show and demonstrate that the same is possible with self-hypnosis. Um, yeah, simple as that. Okay, so so using self-hypnosis, is it that can, you're can you're trying inhibit, to can inhibit make it the Stroop effect as well? Yes. Okay, so you're kind yeah. of making it as if it was in a, a different language they're not aware of, and, and, and recreate that, but just using self-hypnosis is, is that? Yeah, yeah, using it in a self-directed fashion, as opposed to having it done by a, a, a hypnosis professional. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I, I think we, we we've kind of. Uh, we're running out of time. So just as a, a last, very simple question, if people want to know more about you and your work, where, where can they go to find out more? Adam-Eaton.com, first of all. That's my main blog. That's sort of like the hub for all my other sites. From there, you can find my Hypnosis for Running blog. You can find this wonderful podcast that I run. You can find uh, my training college, which is the Anglo-European College of, Europe, um, of Therapeutic Hypnosis. And pretty much everything um, stems from there. You can find um, our Hypnosis for Download website and, and everything from there. So Adam Eason with a hyphen in the middle dot com. Excellent. 
it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's thank you very much. It's been a pleasure much. talking to you, Steve. Well, thank you. <laughs> Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Some fascinating information and some insight into Adam Eaton. The link to his website and also I mentioned his Hypnosis Hub will both be posted with his podcast at hypnosis-weekly.com. So, let's have a look at this week's Hypnosis in the News. Now, the theme for this week, I have two stories to tell you about. The theme is about phobias and overcoming phobias by exposing people to the thing they fear. The first story is from the Daily Mail, where they employed the services of arachnophobe and writer Jonathan O'Callaghan, a man who says he was once trapped in his own kitchen by a large menacing spider perched above the doorframe. As a therapist, I would want to ask him exactly how did that spider menace you? What was it doing? Did it have an AK-47 or something? I'm being slightly flippant. They sent him to London Zoo to attend their friendly spider programme and to try it out. Would he return freed of his arachnophobia? In the story, he outlines the programme, which includes elements of education about spiders and the reality of the, the threat from them, or lack of it. It includes group hypnosis sessions, and it includes, includes controlled exposure to real spiders in what they call the bug house. Initially, they get to go near spiders, and then they're invited to handle the spiders, including Agatha the tarantula. And to their surprise, after having gone through the, the education and the hypnosis and exposed to the spiders, they found themselves doing things that previously they did not think possible handling the spiders and then stopping it even to take photographs of them. But would this effect carry on working? Would it work at home? And a few days later he got an opportunity to test it, finding another spider in the doorway to his bedroom, blocking his entrance to the bedroom by its presence. And yet after a brief moment of trepidation, which he had been told is entirely normal, he simply fetched a glass and a piece of paper, picked up the spider and released it outside. Clearly, he thought this was a success, but yet he questioned what actually made that change. Was it the education? Was it the, the group hypnosis? Or was it the exposure therapy? Now, it's a well-known technique in fields such as CBT and psychology, this idea of exposure, exposure therapy, taking people and exposing them to something that they fear, to show them that they can cope, to make that situation by repetition in some ways normal. Yet we can do that in hypnosis as well. We know that hypnosis increases the efficacy of certain other non-hypnotic techniques, such as this kind of exposure. And yet in hypnosis, using their imagination, people have complete control of the situation. That spider's not going to run up their arm unless they deliberately imagine that. So it's much less likely that someone is going to be overwhelmed. Yet to go back to his question, and he's asking, you know, what made the change? Was it the exposure? Was it the hypnosis? Was it the education? I would suggest 
It was a combination of all three. Moving on, and on the same theme, a TV programme called Extreme Phobias, Extreme Cures. Now, this is good TV. You get a bunch of people who are, in episode one, scared of birds. And you take them to a turkey farm, where they're going to be exposed to and surrounded by thousands of them. And you get to see the fear, you get to see the tears, and yet, with the help of you know, their on-site psychologists who are supporting and explaining, again you see people facing their fear, challenging it, and by the end of the programme, they're plucking the turkeys and taking them home for dinner. So, I'm a bit of a cynic, and I'm usually quite sceptical about what I read in newspapers and see on the TV about hypnosis. Yet, for both of these examples today, I really liked the fact that they presented this idea of exposure therapy. But more so, it was the attitude of the people who got the change at the end of the process, and their statement that they simply they could not believe that they were able to do the things they're now doing. So perhaps, if you're somebody who suffers from a phobia or irrational and you kind of think it's part of you and you have no belief that you could be any way different maybe that doesn't matter and you can change anyway so now let's move on to this week's factoid and I'd like to offer another slightly controversial one that may cause you to raise an eyebrow but stick with me and let me explain the factoid is very simply hypnosis is not therapeutic hypnosis is not therapy. The point is that hypnosis is a way of delivering therapy. It's an environment into which you can use suggestion or some other therapeutic technique. And the hypnosis serves to focus the imagination, focus the engagement of the client, and thus in some way increase the effectiveness, the efficacy of whatever technique it is. But alone, hypnosis has no therapeutic effect at all. This is why hypnotherapists generally have to explain themselves a bit more beyond saying that they are a hypnotherapist. So you will see hypnotherapists describing themselves as a Ericksonian hypnotherapist, or that they use NLP, or for a more evidence-based, that they are cognitive behavioural hypnotherapists and therefore that means they're using CBT techniques and a slightly different take on exactly what hypnosis is and how it's delivered in order to do therapy. So with that we bring this edition of Hypnosis Weekly to a close. I hope you've enjoyed it and found it informative. Next edition Adam is back and in the hot seat is ex-intensive care nurse Helen Bremner. Helen's most known for being the person who set up the only NHS primary care irritable bowel syndrome hypnotherapy service. I've heard her talk before, I'll definitely be listening in and I hope you will be too. For now, thank you, goodbye. Mm-hmm.